You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. Before I begin today, I'd like to talk about an interesting article or an interview that I read earlier today. The interview was with an author named Alex Rosenberg, who is a philosophy professor at Duke University. He specializes in political science and neuroscience. He's recently published a book titled How History Gets Things Wrong, The Neuroscience of Our Addiction to Stories. No, I haven't read the book. I've only read this interview, but I'd really like to read this book. It appears to be about how our addiction to stories, our almost pathological need to incorporate events into narratives, can warp our understanding of history. For example, the story of Napoleon is a story that is traditionally viewed through a biographical lens, when in fact there are hundreds of other factors, if not more, that lead to Napoleon doing what he did. The story of the Third Reich is less seen that way these days, but often Adolf Hitler is the central character in the story, and perhaps he shouldn't be. Perhaps we need to look more at the economics of revolutionary France and interwar Germany. Perhaps we need to look more at the climate, the environment in those two periods and those two regions. Perhaps we need to look more at the socioeconomic side of why these things happened the way they did. Again, I don't intend to represent Mr. Rosenberg's book, but I do intend to read it. There is a quote from him in that interview that I'd like to read. He says, quote, I myself am a victim of narrative. I love narrative. It's fantastically seductive. When I say narrative, I don't mean a chronology of events. I mean stories with plots connected by motivations, by people's beliefs and desires, their plans, intentions, values. There's a story, end quote. And that really resonated with me. On this show, I tend to focus on stories. I tend to look at motivations and intentions, even when perhaps I shouldn't. I always try to make it clear that they are my opinions when they are my opinions, not historical fact. But in, in this story we're telling right now about the Barbary pirates, especially these European pirates operating out of Barbary, there's a lot of armchair psychohistory going on. And next week it's only going to get significantly worse. So remember that in these stories we don't have the motivations of the actors themselves. They didn't write these things down. They didn't tell anyone about them. All we have are the accounts of some of their victims at sea 
the accounts of a number of agents that were sent to Barbary to investigate them by the crowned heads of Europe, and accounts written by people who weren't there some years later. And I am trying to craft a narrative out of the limited historical data we have, but remember to take all of that with a grain of salt. And if you're interested in this particular period and topic, look into it more deeply. Not just the story of the pirates, but the story of the period and the people. But without further ado... Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Back during the Dutch Revolt, in the latter years of the 1500s, Queen Elizabeth of England appointed a member of Parliament named Sir Thomas Shirley to serve as the treasurer at war to the English forces on the continent. Sir Thomas was notably bad at his job. He used crown funds for wild investments and money-making schemes. Now, this was accepted behavior in his position. However, people in that position were expected to be good at it. They were intended to grow the seed capital provided by the crown to fund the army, without making the crown spend any more money. But Sir Thomas failed to do this. He actually found himself in considerable debt to both Dutch and English interests, including Queen Elizabeth herself. His two eldest sons were serving on the continent with him, in the army, but considering their financial straits, they elected to stop serving in the army, to buy a couple of ships, and to go out privateering. It might not have the same honor attached to it, but it was certainly a lot more profitable. His eldest son was also named Thomas, and also knighted, he was Sir Thomas the Younger, and he did very well as a privateer. In fact, it was Sir Thomas the Younger that pulled the family back from the brink of ruin. He roved the Atlantic coast west of Spain and captured ships that were filled with Spanish sugar and silver. Now, this was all perfectly legal privateering, but there was some nefarious political wrangling behind the scenes concerning Sir Thomas the Younger. There were other noble families that wanted to see the House of Shirley fall. They saw a weak and sick member of the pack, so they wanted to swoop in and claim their lands. But Thomas the Younger, through his privateering, forestalled this. Some of the heads of those other noble families were members of the Admiralty and they brought Thomas before them on charges of high seas piracy. Now, Thomas was briefly jailed, but he had enough powerful friends that he escaped mostly unscathed. But his younger brother, Sir Anthony Shirley, and he was actually the middle brother in a trio, but we don't need to talk about the third brother, Sir Anthony had bigger ideas. He wanted to travel, not to the Channel and not to the west coast of Spain or even the west coast of Africa. He wanted to travel to the source of all of that Spanish wealth, and he wanted to fill his ship with silver and gold. Maybe, just maybe, he would be able to capture one of the fabled Spanish treasure galleons and return home to England 
one of the richest men in his kingdom. That is a big idea. It's bold, but he certainly found a crew that wanted in. The crew armed themselves and their ship, and they provisioned as well as possible, and they set sail south in 1596. Now, first they ravaged the Portuguese slaver colonies in Africa. This was a first stop for anyone traveling to the New World, but then they headed west across the Atlantic. However, he and his crew endured a terrible crossing. There were shortages, they were... However, he and his crew endured a terrible crossing. There were shortages, there were storms. A few men died in the crossing, however, they made it. And Sir Anthony found himself in the shoes of the English hero Francis Drake, who was still alive at this time. Sir Anthony had a ship that was full of stolen slaves. He may have had some gold or ivory, but he also had an armed crew, and he had nowhere to sell the slaves that he had stolen. You may recall the tale of John Hawkins and the battle and betrayal that Sir Francis Drake endured. Sir Anthony wanted to avoid that at all costs. However, he would find that his situation was quite different. This is episode 89, Death and Destiny. Sir Anthony's West Indian adventure would not have the same swashbuckling conclusion as Drake's infamous battle in the Gulf of Mexico, and it wouldn't even come close to Drake's capture of the Spanish silver mule train outside of Nombre de Dios. Sir Anthony's crew mutinied shortly after arriving in the Caribbean, and it wasn't one of the cool mutinies the crew didn't want to turn pirate and abandon England and live lives of ease and excess. No, they were really far from home. They didn't have much in the way of food or supplies, and all they wanted was to go back to England. So they mutinied. Now, Sir Anthony managed to keep control of his ship, but he did so by agreeing to take them back to England. And there was a slight problem here. By the time they got back to England, Queen Elizabeth was dead, and James Stuart was on the throne of England. And in the reign of King James I, English eyes were all turned toward the horizon. There was a great race on at sea to conquer the world. Portugal and Spain were leagues ahead of anyone else. They had the New World, Africa, and Southeast Asia in their hands already. The seas, almost everywhere, were commanded by Spanish galleons that routinely traversed the Pacific and the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans with holds full of wealth extracted from those foreign soils and the blood of their native peoples. But they had been on top for a long time, and the other nations of Europe all wanted in on the game, especially since they sensed Spain was weak after the death of Philip II. But they couldn't just jump in and take over. See, Sir Anthony was ahead of his time when he sailed west to the New World. England wasn't ready for that quite yet. Instead, England decided to dip her toes into waters much closer to home. There was a bit of maneuvering in the North Sea concerning Russia and Denmark and the Nordic countries, but primarily they dipped their toes into the Mediterranean. Now, the Mediterranean already had major players. There was Spain, obviously, but then there were all of the Italian city-states and principalities and kingdoms and republics, and then there was the Ottoman Empire. 
but England had big plans to join the fray in the Mediterranean. Now, the elder Shirley brother, Sir Thomas the Younger, well, he was currently employed by one of those Italian lords, the Duke of Tuscany. He was serving as a privateer against the Ottoman Empire. This was precisely the sort of good, upstanding work that any young English nobleman should have been up to. This was the sort of thing that, though it wasn't technically part of his mandate, the king and council and the nobility of England could all get behind. This is what Sir Anthony should have been doing instead of marauding in the New World. Sir Anthony found himself... Well, he wasn't so gainfully employed as his brother. After the mutiny, when he got back to England, he was hauled before the Admiralty on charges of high seas piracy. Now, this was similar to what his brother had experienced. However, unlike the political background behind the trial of the elder brother, these charges looked a lot more legitimate. Sir Anthony argued before the Admiralty that he was unaware of King James' proclamation against privateering. He argued that he had a proper privateering commission from Queen Elizabeth to raid the Spanish and didn't know that these had gone away. And he actually might have been telling the truth here. But it, well, it looked an awful lot like he sailed for the West Indies to circumvent the prohibition laid down by King James. Sir Anthony lost his trial. He was convicted and jailed. Now, his father, the elder Sir Thomas, had been a member of Parliament. Sir Thomas the Younger and Sir Anthony, his two eldest sons, had both served in Parliament as well. They had been elected to the House of Commons at, well, various times during their life. They were landed nobility. They were knights and, well, they weren't the sort of common pirates that the Admiralty seemed to be making them out to be. So their peers in the Parliament, many of whom they knew personally, many of whom they were related to, well, they drafted up a document called the Form of Apology and Satisfaction. This document was drafted by the House of Commons and presented to King James. Now remember, James was a Scotsman. He was not a native Englishman, not in the eyes of the English people, at least. This letter was presented to King James, and it called him a foreign king to his face. But then it went further. It called the king ignorant of the House of Commons, quote, privileges and liberties, end quote. There were a number of issues here. There were land rights in question, which James was stomping all over. There were questions of taxation as well. Elizabeth had always had a light touch when it came to taxation, if at all possible, but King James did not. But then there was a central issue that was perhaps more personal to the members of the House of Commons. There was the imprisonment of two men who had at times been members of their house, Sir Thomas and Sir Anthony Shirley. They demanded that Sir Anthony be released from prison and pardoned immediately. This document is actually a fairly substantial piece of English history. It wasn't exactly the first time that the Parliament had stood up to King James, but it was the first truly notable time that the House of Commons officially stood up to the king. 
Remember, the House of Stuart was upsetting a lot of people in England, especially the Parliament, and, well, they were well on their way to a civil war. Sir Anthony didn't necessarily know any of that, but he likely knew that there was that simmering tension between the Parliament and the King, he was a part of that at times, and he likely knew that this document was responsible for his pardon and release. But he decided not to press his luck there in England. He left those shores almost immediately. Sir Anthony's story after leaving England is one of those adventure tales that I greatly admire. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of someone like William Dampier. Now, he wasn't an intellectual or a scientist at all, but he did travel the world, and he did run into piracy many times in his life. The first stop after leaving England was Russia. There were some business connections with the Shirley family in Russia, and during Elizabeth's reign, there had been a lot of diplomatic relations established. But then he traveled overland through northeastern Europe and then made his way to Vienna in Austria, where he met the Holy Roman Emperor, Rudolf II. Now, Rudolf was eager to meet with Sir Anthony. He already knew his brothers, Sir Thomas, and the youngest brother, Robert. In fact, in a way, Sir Thomas the Younger sort of worked for Rudolf II. The Duke of Tuscany, Sir Thomas's primary employer, was an ally and sort of a vassal of the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, we've talked about Rudolf before when we discussed the lead-up to the Thirty Years' War. He usually takes a little bit of blame in that story because, well, he was a hands-off sort of emperor. He had a progressive, conciliatory attitude towards Protestantism. He was much more concerned with the Ottoman Empire, hence employing English privateers. But his brother, his successor, would not be. Had Rudolf not had such a hands-off approach, and his brother not had such a hands-on approach, there wouldn't have been such a drastic change in policy that would inflame the Protestants there in Germany and set Europe on fire. Now that's all in the future of the story and the past of this podcast, but for the moment, Rudolf II had a request for Sir Anthony. His cousin, Philip III of Spain, needed a good man to serve in the Mediterranean and the African coast. And I'm fairly certain that the closest relationship we can use to describe Rudolf II and Philip III is cousin, but I'm not necessarily positive. Charles V was both of their grandfathers, so they were cousins at least, but the House of Habsburg in this period was so intermarried that their family tree begins to look like maybe a braid or maybe a DNA strand, ironically enough. Rudolph's mother married her first cousin, the nephew of Charles V, and they gave birth to Rudolph and his sister. Then Rudolph's sister married her own uncle, Philip II of Spain. She was his fourth wife, and he was significantly older than her, but their son, Philip III was Rudolf's nephew and his cousin. Then Rudolf's... I'm fairly certain she was his aunt, Margaret of Austria. She was married to Philip III, Rudolf's nephew and the current king of Spain. And Margaret of Austria was actually Philip III's first cousin once removed. And 
now she was his wife. And I won't even begin to get into who their kids were and how they were related or who they'll marry, at least not today. All of that is way off topic for today, but I am really looking forward to talking about the War of the Spanish Succession. This is just crazy to me. But back to our story. Rudolph II was sending Sir Anthony to meet with Philip III, his nephew cousin, and his wife, Margaret of Spain, Rudolph's aunt-niece. Now, Margaret was the real power in that marriage. She was the real power in Spain. By one account, Philip III was an undistinguished and insignificant man, and that seemed to be the consensus. However, his wife, Margaret, had a better mind for ruling. And I don't mean to diminish what may have just been an intelligent mind and natural talent, but Margaret's parents were at least a little bit less related than Philip III's were. So she may have had something of a head start on her husband. But upon his arrival in Spain, Sir Anthony was made the admiral of the Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean. This is not an insignificant feat for an Englishman who fought the Spanish in the Dutch Revolt. An Englishman who sailed to the New World with the intention of capturing a Spanish treasure galleon, if at all possible. But he did have the street cred of having been jailed by the King of England and then all but exiled from his home. The Queen of Spain may have seen a certain proclivity to act against the English in him. At the moment, as admiral of the Spanish fleet in the Mediterranean, his duties were going to be dealing with Morocco. In fact, that was probably why he was given the position here. See, Spain and Morocco were a lot less close than they had been. This was right about 1606, late in 1606, and Samuel Palash was busy orchestrating the alliance between the Moroccan Sultan and Maurice of Nassau. Now, the Sultan, the Moroccan Sultan, was unlikely to welcome a Spaniard into his court, but an emissary from Spain that was English, a former enemy of Spain's, would show the goodwill and air of mutual forgiveness that Margaret of Austria, Queen of Spain, was willing to show. It was, I think, a brilliant political move. Now, Sir Anthony's job there in Morocco, aside from showing how kind-hearted Margaret of Spain could be, was to convince the Moroccan sultan that an alliance with Spain was a far better proposition than an alliance with the Netherlands. And he arrived in Morocco to do that job in July of 1607. Last time, I wildly speculated that there may have been a grand conspiracy between the Sultan of Morocco and Maurice of Nassau and Samuel Palash and maybe Uthman Day using the Barbary pirates to destabilize the Ottoman presence in the Mediterranean. There were other actors in that conspiracy, if one did exist, English actors, who would have been working for the Sultan with the Dutch. If there were any truth in that conspiracy, Sir Anthony immediately began to work against it, against his former countrymen who were working for the Sultan and against the Dutch. He was doing the job that he had been contracted to do by the Queen of Spain in favor of Spain's interests, but also in favor of 
England's prerogative. When he arrived in Fez, the capital of Morocco, the hometown of Samuel Palache, he was immediately noticed there as an Englishman. He secured the meetings he needed to secure, and he began to do his job in discussing terms with advisors and viziers, and perhaps even the sultan himself, but at every turn, every time he managed to make a little bit of headway, he was hindered. Anyone that he spoke with wanted to stop the conversation, stop this diplomatic talk, and ask him about this English arch-pirate they had all heard so much about operating out of Tunis. Anybody who has ever traveled outside of their home country, when there is somebody particularly notorious from their own country, knows this feeling. Everybody wants to ask you about this person, how you feel about them, what you might know about them, what can you tell them about this notorious figure. This was seriously handicapping Sir Anthony's ability to do business. So, so this noble gentleman turned privateer and convicted pirate jumped into action to deal with the renegade Englishman Jack Ward. Well, he wrote him a sternly worded letter. But it was fairly stern. Jack Ward received that letter from Sir Anthony in Tunis. Sir Anthony urged Ward, on his honor as a fellow Englishman and a Christian, to, quote, dissuade him from that wicked and villainous manner of living, end quote. Sir Anthony described the incumbent pain of hellfire, but then he offered Jack Ward a way out. This was a carrot and a stick. He gave him the stick of hell, and then for the carrot he offered to, quote, do his utmost to effect peace with all people if he might but prevail to call Ward in, or be the happy means to entice Ward rather to serve and bear arms with the Christians than the Turk, than to do the Turk's service by robbing or spoiling Christians, end quote. He was offering Ward a way back a way into the world. It was a way to earn forgiveness, not just the forgiveness of kings, but the forgiveness of God himself. But Jack Ward wouldn't have anything to do with it. Ward probably received the letter on board the recently captured Reniera Isodorina. He also may have been in his palatial residence in the Palace of the Treasury, but on board the Rainiera Isodorina, his men were working around the clock to outfit that giant Venetian ship for pirating, and they were doing quite well at it. She was a ship of 1,500 tons with 60 guns on two different decks. This was a powerhouse unlike almost any other ship sailing, and they did the typical pirate and privateer things. They stripped the sleeping quarters to make her a little bit lighter, and then they improved the rigging, and they cleaned the hull so that she would be as fast as possible. In A True and Certain Report of Captain Ward, Parker writes, quote, His mind was so inflated with pride and puffed up with vain glory that now he thought, nay, did not dare to speak, he was the sole and only commander of the sea, and indeed, like the sea, was always unsatisfied, end quote. News from the Sea, the pamphlet about Ward, says of Ward's response to the letter from Sir Anthony, quote, 
What boots words to deaf ears, or reason to such as are willfully bent to follow mischief? What, though he be able to triumph in his chains of gold, in his jewels of pearl and precious stone, or his other riches won by rapine and theft and the spoil of others? What, when he be able to boast of freedom? Nothing would take effect with Ward to seduce him from his courses, or to draw him to a lawful and regular kind of life. End quote. And nothing would draw him out of his way of life, not the Venetian coast guard that was currently patrolling the sea for him, nor the Spanish galleons on his trail, not even the Dutch vessels looking for pirates, not even the squadron of English warships that had been sent down to the Mediterranean specifically to look for him. Ward felt very comfortable here. And that's some of that armchair psychohistory I mentioned earlier, but he must have felt comfortable. Not only did he have the Rainiere Soderina, his new flagship, he still had Little John and Ruby and Carminati, as well as the gift. The designs of those ships were different, but the firepower under John Ward's command equated to, by the standards that would be set down later by Admiral Pepys, a third-rate ship of the line, a frigate, or a fifth-rate ship, and two sixth-rate ships of the line, as well as a sloop of war. And those were only the ships that personally belonged to John Ward, captained by his lieutenants, men like Bill Graves and Richard Bishop and Anthony Johnson. In addition to those, he had a small fleet of smaller but powerful pirate vessels under his command, ships that would equate to frigates and sloops of war later on, or a little bit smaller maybe, now, those ships belonged to other captains, mostly English and Dutch, people like Sir Francis Verney, that young nobleman we discussed last time, but they were all in his fleet, under his command. So I have to imagine he felt very comfortable. As for Sir Francis Verney, he was not respected as a pirate. He wasn't even respected as a sailor. He was neither, really. But the assembled men were a bit enraptured by him. Well, their admiral, Jack Ward, was a gruff, low-born, drunken, foul-mouthed pirate. Francis Verney was every inch the well-born, well-educated, well-spoken nobleman. I imagine that somebody like that showing up, well, I imagine the corsairs were a bit standoffish at first, but... Verney very likely told them his tale of his wicked stepmother and the vile English parliament. He could have told them tales of all of the oafish, fat sons of noble houses, and I bet the pirates would have liked that bit. And then he certainly would have told them about his time as a mercenary in Morocco. That would give him some credibility with the English. Now, the Dutch may have known about his family's role in their revolt already, if not, he could have told them about that, maybe even embellished that a bit. But that, including the fact that he served with Dutchmen in Morocco, would win him the Netherlands. Now, the rest of the pirates there in Tunis under Jack Ward, not the English or Dutch, but the Venetians and the Berbers and the Spaniards and the Janissary warriors, well, I imagine they would have been ambivalent to this noble fop and all of his charms, but 
he did bring in another ship and a few dozen more men and twenty or thirty guns, and that was always welcome. And if anyone was worried that this fancy young nobleman had come there to supplant their admiral and take over his position, well, all they had to do was to see how Francis Verney talked to John Ward, and all of their fears would have been allayed. Try to imagine it. Fifty-five years old, short, bald, bearded, swarthy, Jack Ward. He was outfitted in gold and jewels and the best silks that money could buy. You know, I picture, and this is the worst comparison I could use, but do you remember in the 1991 Steven Spielberg movie Hook, the movie starring Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman and Julia Roberts, Bob Hoskins played the character of Shmee, Captain Hook's second-in-command. And there's a scene where, bald and short and stout and gray, Shmee is preparing to run. And he comes out of the cabin just covered in necklaces and rings and bracelets, and he's carrying goblets and candlesticks and, I think, a clock that was kind of a thing with Captain Hook, right? Imagine that, only instead of lovable Bob Hoskins, it's an angry old drunk who speaks primarily in grunts and profanity. He almost certainly suffers from some severe PTSD and severe delusions of grandeur. Imagine that standing on the quarterdeck of a beautiful, huge warship, and imagine him addressed by an eloquent, handsome, well-dressed young man. And then, imagine him pledging his loyalty to Jack Ward. It would be clear from his demeanor that this young nobleman idolizes Ward. Ward was everything that Verney's family and estates and friends back at Oxford. Ward was everything that they weren't. In the eyes of Francis Verney, Jack Ward would have seemed just like so real, man. If anything, that image of the young handsome, well-spoken nobleman deferring to their admiral, well, that would strengthen the resolve that those pirates felt in their following of Jack Ward. If someone like Verney actively sought out John Ward with the express intention of following him, of pledging his allegiance to him, then these pirates must have known that they were on the right side here. Or at least, I imagine, were I in their shoes, that's how I would feel. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to say exactly how many pirate ships were in Jack Ward's fleet, aside from his own personal ships and that of Francis Verney. Those royal agents in the Barbary Coast cities, as well as the later accounts and the accounts given by survivors of the pirate raids, can conflict with each other on occasion. There are names that may belong to different pirates or the same pirates. It's difficult to say due to the spelling. There are occasionally times when a single pirate will be named, but he will be in command of three or four ships. Oftentimes there were smaller fleets that had previously been operating out of Tunis or Algiers that came to sail under Jack Ward once he became such a famous and notorious pirate. And of course those ships came and went. They may have had some allegiance to Jack Ward, or maybe not. Maybe the accounts just said they did to give Jack Ward a greater notoriety. Conservatively, I would estimate 12 ships. Those are the number that I can give a name to, of a captain or the ship itself. But it was probably significantly more than that, maybe two or three times that number. There are some chroniclers that would have you believe that there were hundreds of ships sailing under Jack Ward's command, but I don't give those any credence. Now, there may have been hundreds of ships sailing out of Tunis, corsairs of one stripe or another, but not all of them belonged or were even in any way under Jack Ward. He wasn't the admiral of the Tunisian navy, he was the admiral of his own private pirate fleet. News from the sea, as well as one of the British chroniclers in Tunis at the time, tells us that around here is when Simon Danziker joined up with Jack Ward. However, that's up for some debate. Simon Danziker did sail either under or alongside Jack Ward at some point, but the timelines tend to contradict. It may have been shortly after arriving in Algiers and ingratiating himself with the Pasha there, or it may have been some time a little bit later. He may have sailed with Jack Ward two or three times. Personally, I don't think that he ever sailed under Jack Ward as part of his fleet. I think they sailed together, maybe sort of an alliance. At this point, it seems that Zyman Danziker was not in Tunis. He was out in the Mediterranean on the prowl, but we'll more on that next time. In the fall of 1607, shortly after receiving that letter from Sir Anthony Shirley, Jack Ward set out to sea. The Reniere Isodorina was fully armed and ready to sail. His armada was among the strongest in the Mediterranean. Now, of course, if it came to it, any seafaring state on the Mediterranean would be able to raise a fleet that could crush Jack Ward, perhaps without any significant and serious losses. But that's a hypothetical. Forces like that weren't just sailing around or sitting in harbor. The fleets of these Mediterranean states were separated. They were spread out. Take 
the biggest, the Spanish or Ottoman or Venetian fleets, they would have had Coast Guard regiments all over the place, combined them, and they would have significantly outnumbered Jack Ward's fleet, but Jack Ward was sailing in strength here. They did spread out a bit as they neared Italy, though. Now, we don't have an accurate record of the early days of this cruise, but we can extrapolate from a few of the ships that were reported taken, and one particular account, that Jack Ward sailed up the west coast of Italy first. Now, he didn't take any Italian ships on this cruise, not papal vessels or Genoan or Sicilian. He was sailing under the radar, as it were, trying to go unnoticed by the Italian authorities. But when he finally passed out of Italian territorial waters and into French territorial waters, or at least far enough out to sea that he wouldn't cause a ruckus back in Italy, he set his men loose. Any ship that was flying the French flag was fair game for Jack Ward's pirates. Now, this was fairly shocking to the people of southern France. Remember, the French were at least occasional allies of the Ottoman Empire. They had largely been exempt from the Mediterranean Barbary Corsairs in the past. But Jack Ward and his crews were mostly English or Dutch. Those that weren't were mostly Venetian, Spanish, or native to the Barbary Coast. None of those places were particularly fond of the French. The English were ancient enemies of the French, the Dutch and the Spanish both had territorial border disputes with them, and Venice had fought off more than a few attacks from French soldiers during the Italian Wars. Now, the ships that he took weren't terribly large or particularly rich, but there was a blitzkrieg of French ships taken or captured or sunk during this period, and that sent the French into a state of, well, almost a state of shock, but then into a state of rage. The French marshaled a force of royal warships that were to sail out and destroy the pirates. But when they got out to sea, no one could find a hint of Jack Ward or his armada. He'd sailed in unnoticed, executed a barrage of piracy, taking dozens of ships' cargo and treasure, and then disappeared into the wind. There is one report of Jack Ward capturing a ship and crew that had the audacity to try and fight him, and then he sent the ship back to Tunis to be sold and the crew to be sold into slavery. And that wasn't what Ward was after here, but it did send a message. This was an act of retaliation. Normally, Jack Ward would just take the cargo, maybe the ship if it was particularly nice. But anyone who attempted to resist him would meet the same fate as those sent back to Tunis. But surrender your cargo, and you can keep your ship and your freedom to sail home to your family most likely. And mostly that message worked. Now, some of the ships taken in this period that were attributed to Jack Ward were almost certainly not his doing. Danziker was out there somewhere, just probably not sailing with Jack Ward. And most historians will agree that several of the ships captured by Captain Ward in the pamphlets and books written about him were actually captured by Danziker. However, Ward had disappeared. Once again, he had fallen off the radar. Nobody knew where he was. Now, I know where he went, but I'm not going to tell you that quite yet. Once again, Jack Ward was staying out of the way of any ships he might come across. Even if the French did decide to warn the Italians or even the Spanish, and frankly they were unlikely to, that would take time for word to get to those other states. 
It would take time to muster those fleets, and they would be unlikely to catch up to him. Now, allow me to jump forward several months. We're going to look at a moment in which a letter arrived in London. A letter addressed to a group of rich investors and ship owners that were members of what you might call a proto-corporation that was involved in shipping and merchant affairs. That letter was sent from Lisbon, penned by a man named Daniel Bannister. Now, Bannister was the master of an English ship that belonged to that proto-corporation. That ship was the merchantman Charity. Now, after an introduction in the letter and a fair amount of boot-licking, Daniel Bannister begins by saying, quote, So inconstant is fortune, so transitory is the state of man, so mutable are the seasons, and so lamentable are the travels of poor seafaring men. End quote. And then Bannister writes something in Latin that I can't read, but he goes on, quote, From Lisbon we are now enforced to write, and we must entreat with you the patience to read of nothing but the world's period makers, death and destiny, of sorrow instead of prosperous success, of our lamentation at sea instead of bringing profit to shore. End quote. Now, if you were a rich investor in a corporation there in London, you probably didn't have the most up-to-date information on Jack Ward. However, you would certainly have agents reporting back to you about events in the Mediterranean region. You had interests there. It would be smart to do so. So you would have known that he was out there attacking French ships. And then, radio silence, until you receive that letter. Death and destiny. Sorrow instead of prosperous success. Lamentation at sea. And no profit. Now I'm going to skip over the paragraphs that follow that. It's a lot of woe is me, a poor sailor, and then a lot more praising of the investors. The traits that the investors tend to be praised for the most are their nobility and forgiveness and their sense of justice and how understanding they are. It's a little bit paper thin. But finally, Daniel Bannister gets to the point. On 15 March the charity put in at a Venetian port to trade the goods that they had in their holds for what the captain calls corn, but he means wheat, though. The voyage had sailed from London to trade wool in France initially, and it looks like in France they picked up some wine, which they then traded in Spain. Now, I don't know what they picked up in Spain, but this was the way of their voyage. They hopped from port to port trading goods that would fetch a good price there, for goods that would fetch a better price elsewhere. So everything was going well. Now this was the penultimate stop, that one in Venice to pick up the wheat. That ship, the charity, planned to trade that wheat in, I think in France, but maybe elsewhere in Italy, but their plan was to trade it there for good silver and make a huge profit. So after leaving that penultimate stop, the charity headed south, down the Adriatic until she was finally near the heel of Italy, the southeast corner of Italy. And there, the Charity encountered another ship. It was another English ship. And this one turned out to be the Pearl, out of London. And the Pearl was owned by that same group of rich investors, that same proto-corporation. In fact, the Pearl and the Charity knew each other, or at least knew of each other, 
and it turned out they were both headed out of the Mediterranean. Now, both captains and crews had heard some troubling whispers about pirates in the area. They always heard these sort of whispers, but they knew that there were pirates out there. So they decided that it would be smart to sail together, add a little extra protection. They made impressive time across the Mediterranean. They caught an excellent wind out of the east, what they call a Levant, and they made it from Naples to almost the coast of Spain in 15 days. That's spectacular time. But Daniel Bannister then writes in that letter he sent to his bosses that on the 3rd of April, 1608, quote, Many things happen between the cup and the lip. Man purposeth and God disposeth. That who trusts himself upon the pinnacles of fortune is readiest to fall under the tempest of ruin. The glorious morning sun is up early to awake us with the promise of a delightful day. Yet even then, by the overcharging of the clouds, the day is overcast and our expectation frustrated. The sun hath forsook his promise to lend us his beams. Calmness is turned to tempests, and the fairness we had put hope on is turned to fearfulness. End quote. Now, that's not metaphor or allegory or poetic license. He's literally saying that the day turned very stormy. The waters grew choppy, and the pearl and charity were separated. Now, they could still see each other, but they were far apart from one another. And that was when the pirates struck. It's unclear if Jack Ward was here at this moment, but I believe that he was, so you can picture a giant Venetian ship accompanied by at least four men of war surrounding the Pearl. Now that's not the ship that the author of that letter, Daniel Bannister, was on. He was observing all of this from a distance, and he thought for a brief moment that those ships might have been friendly ships there to lend aid in this terrible storm. A giant Venetian ship was probably a Venetian ship. But then, Daniel Bannister watched in horror as the Pearl struck her sails and the crew of that Venetian giant boarded her. And then three ships broke away and made for the charity. Bannister gave his ship all the sail he could, but his charity was small. There were only twenty crewmen on board, and it had been at sea for some time. Those three vessels that were coming for him, well, they were well-manned, full of sail, and, according to Bannister, they were impeccably clean, as though they had just come out of port, he says. They were significantly faster. I take this to mean that at some point the crews had careened the ships on some island or inlet on the coast, but either way, those three ships came upon Charity swiftly. There was a ship on either side of Charity, and then a third ship at the stern. Now, Bannister noted three things here, with terrible shock. First, he saw the telltale skin tone and clothing of the Janissary warrior. Those were fearful Turks, but they were of European origin. They had been forcefully turned from the one true faith. Bannister knew that those Janissaries lusted for the chance to kill good Christian men more than anything else. Now, that wasn't exactly true, but that was how Bannister saw things. And then second, Bannister saw that most of the faces on board those ships were not Janissary warriors, and when he heard them speak over the waves, he recognized many of their voices to be English. 
and they weren't slaves. They were working alongside the Turks, occasionally giving them commands. And then, perhaps the most shocking thing of all to Daniel Bannister, captain of the charity, he realized he knew the captains of all three vessels. See, there were, according to the prevalent winds in the Mediterranean, a number of traditional trade routes, and Charity had run all of them during her years. Daniel Bannister knew all of them, and both Charity and Bannister were well known on the Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast was an excellent place to pick up some exotic fruits, some spices, perhaps olives, but more than anything, beeswax. Beeswax was hard to come by in England, and it was all over the North African coast. Bannister realized that all three of the captains he saw around his vessel, well, they were captains that he had shared that route with in the past. Maybe not sailed with them, but sailed the same route. These were men that he, at some point, very likely had a drink with in a tavern somewhere to discuss prices or the weather or whatever ship captains discussed in 1605 in Algiers. But he tells us their names, at least their last names. He gives us ranks as well, but I'm not sure that they are accurate to their ranks in the pirate fleet. He says that the admiral of these three ships was a man named Captain Lynx. That ship carried 30 guns. What he calls the vice admiral was a man named Powell. And then the rear admiral, according to Bannister, was a man named Captain Foxley. Both of those prior two ships carried 28 pieces of ordnance. Now, those terms are probably a bit confused. Jack Ward was the admiral of the entire fleet, but it was common practice to rank the members of any given fleet, even a fleet of three tiny ships in that fashion. And those ships may have been a part of a merchant convoy at some point in the past, and perhaps at that point... Lynx was the admiral, and Powell was the vice-admiral, and Foxley was the rear-admiral. But it seems that things had changed, Captain Bannister realized once he was fully stopped by those three pirate vessels. I do wonder if he had a moment of hope. He knew these men, perhaps they would spare him. But it became clear in short order that these once upstanding, honest merchantmen out of England had gone on the account. The, what Bannister called the rear admiral, Captain Foxley, was the man who hailed Bannister, and he appears to have been in command at this point. He told Bannister that, quote, if we would not presently strike our topsail, thereby to show our yielding was immediate, they would lay us directly aboard with their ships and as readily sink us, end quote. Captain Bannister, and remember this is according to a letter he was sending back to his investors and his bosses, so take it all with a huge grain of salt, Captain Bannister said he was prepared to fight. He shouted back at Foxley that he was, quote, as resolute to repel as his enemies were to offer, end quote, and that his men were all well-armed and ready. As Bannister put it, quote, we were fitted to bid them welcome. And then he continues, Such a hot entertainment should they find, as all the water that bear them should hardly bring them into a cool temper again. End quote. Now he was writing this in a letter, but he wrote it as though those were the words that he said to Captain Foxley. 
I think whatever Bannister really said, if he did in fact want to fight in the first place, was something a lot more like whatever the 1608 equivalent of come at me bro might be. And, you know, maybe that eloquence that he showed in that letter was the 1608 equivalent of come at me bro, the equivalent of two dudes puffing up their chests, but, well, I kind of doubt that. Either way, though, Captain Bannister did not strike sail, so the gunners on board all three pirate vessels shouted out orders and the crew began to load their guns. Hands ran up into the rigging, and the pilots on board the vessels set a course to encircle the charity. And then, like sharks circling a piece of prey, the pirates brandished gleaming swords and held aloft all of their firearms. They screamed across insults and threats as they circled around the ship bearing their weapons. They weren't just threats of impending death, that was to be understood, but these pirates reminded those twenty sailors on board the charity that when they were dead, other men would come in and claim their wives and their daughters, perhaps kill their sons and take their land. Still, though, according to Captain Bannister, the men on board Charity held on to their resolution. So, Captain Foxley came up with another idea. He barked out an order, and after a few moments, a gang of prisoners, all chained up in a line, a chain gang essentially, were marched out of the holds on deck. And then those prisoners began to address Captain Bannister and all of his men, and they addressed them in English. These prisoners, in chains, informed the crew of charity that they were slaves. They were to be sold in Tunis, and their days, everything they had to look forward to, would be endless hours of pain and fear and torment and toil. They were beaten on board this ship. They were assaulted in the worst ways possible, and they were given barely enough food to survive to bring them to Tunis. Some of them had tears in their eyes. Some of them broke down, and any man who did was beaten down on the deck. Finally, Foxley barked out a final order, and all of the prisoners fell silent. Foxley looked up to Bannister, and he told them that these men were the last crew to offer him any resistance when he came upon them. But, Foxley said, Bannister and Charity had not yet fired a shot, no blood had been drawn on either side, and if they surrendered, Charity and the crew would all be allowed to go free. I think this is, well, it's a sort of a gamble. This is a last-ditch effort to convince Bannister to surrender peacefully. Now, if Bannister and the Charity believed Foxley here, they would almost certainly surrender. They don't want to be prisoners, obviously, and this is a losing battle. But if they don't believe you, if they think that you're going to take them as slaves, which you have just seen evidence that they're willing to do, well, they would have redoubled the fighting spirit of the men on board Charity. They would have been terrified. So this gamble could either turn out very well for Foxley and the pirates, or a little bit more difficult for him. However, in the end, it worked. Bannister tells us that he saw tears not only in the eyes of those enslaved, but in the eyes of many of the English pirates as well. He saw even a few of the Janissary warriors, he 
calls them the infidels, but he saw that some of them were even visibly moved by the tale of that pain. He saw that they knew what was ahead for those English prisoners. He saw that they knew how terrible it was going to be for them, and he saw that they were resolved to bring them to Tunis nonetheless. And then he saw his own men. He saw them trembling with fear, and he realized that their will to fight was breaking. I think what broke them here was, well, when they had been prepared to fight, they were fighting odds that certainly would have ended in their defeat. They were prepared to die, to defend their ship and their honor. If that were the case, they would have sunk down into the depths or died on deck with a bullet wound, and then they would have risen to heaven. But now they knew that that was not going to happen. Now they knew that they would not be allowed that sweet release. Instead, they would be enslaved for the rest of their lives. And that was what broke them. So, Captain Bannister signaled the surrender. The charity was boarded, and the crew was loaded on to one of the three ships. They did so turn by turn. The first sailor was loaded on to one ship, and then the second sailor loaded on to a different ship, and then the third loaded on to the final ship, and then the fourth sailor would be loaded on to that first ship, but that would give them enough time to ensure that the first sailor brought aboard that ship would be under guard and not about to start any sort of trouble. It was a slow process, but it was the safest way to break up this crew and make sure that everybody had at least two men guarding him. Then Captain Bannister tells us, quote, They presently came aboard us, fell violently to ransack, pillaging our traffic, cutting down our cabins, and smashing our chests to pieces, leaving us nothing to call our own but what we had on our backs, they took away all the powder we had, leaving us not so much beside as would prine one piece. They bereft us of most of our great shot, all our muskets, all our small shot, of our match, pikes, ladles, sponges, rapiers, swords, daggers, of all necessary munition for defense, leaving nothing with us but the vast sea and the unconstant wind to defend us. End quote. Now, every pirate ship throughout history put a priority on munitions and weapons. They were invaluable to the pirates. Next to the ships themselves, they were the most valuable tools of the trade. Honestly, you know, they might prefer chests of silver and gold and rubies and pearls, but if those weren't available, they would prioritize the weapons above all else, unless... They were starving and needed food, or, you know, maybe there was booze on board. They might take that before the weapons, but the weapons third or fourth. But then, well, Bannister calls the cargo here traffic, and they took all of that, and then they went after the foodstuffs. They took the beef, they took the pork, they took something called cheese rise. Now, I'm not entirely certain what cheese rise is. He might mean yeast, or he may just mean cheese. But the pirates left the crew of the charity only hard bread and a little water, and hardly enough of that to make it safely to shore. Now this operation took several hours. The sailors of the charity slept under guard that night. Or, you know, it's probable they didn't sleep at all, but they spent the night under guard. Personally, were I in their situation, I would be terrified that we had been lied to. 
Those English sailors that we had seen were merely a ruse to get us to surrender peacefully and come on board, and now we're slaves. But come morning, Captain Foxley had all of the prisoners gathered, and he spoke to them in English. The charity was pretty well picked over, but Captain Foxley lowered his voice. He looked over his shoulder and appeared to confide in these men who stood before him prisoners. He told them that, quote, It was no way their intent, nor was it their captain, Captain Ward's pleasure, that any private seafaring man's venture be in any ways hindered, end quote. And what Foxley was talking about here is, well, most merchant sailors would bring along a private cargo with them on their voyages, something that they personally owned and intended to trade. Usually it was something that they or their family produced. Sometimes it would be poor fare, like wool or grain, but sometimes it would be textiles produced by their families, by their children and wives, sometimes fine clothes made out of that wool. Now, sailors would trade that personal cargo in much the same fashion as the other cargo on board. They would trade up and up and up until they had something that would be worth a good bit of coin back in England. This was the benefits package to supplement their abysmal wages. That's just how it worked. But Foxley was saying here that neither he nor his fellow captains nor Captain Ward, his admiral, wanted these men to lose their own personal possessions. These pirates weren't here to rob these men of their livelihood. They only wanted to rob their bosses, and that would only be of a little profit anyway. It fit well into the Robin Hood image of Captain Jack Ward. Not only did he have the little John, but this proved that he preferred to steal from the rich and, well, if not give to the poor, at least he would spare the poor. But then, Foxley said, quote, These Turks, whom I doubt not but you have heard to be cruel enough, have as much command or more than ourselves. Wherefore, if you have anything that you would have defended from their grip, deliver it in trust to us. And as we are your countrymen, we will see it faithfully preserved, and upon your free discharge, restored to you in full. End quote. Look, guys, we don't want to steal your stuff. We only want to steal your boss's stuff. But those guys, those scary infidels over there, well, they really do whatever they want. There's nothing I can do to stop them. But if you give us all of your goods, we'll make sure that they don't touch any of it. Swearsies. Now, I alluded to this a few weeks ago in a hypothetical, imaginary pirate attack, but it did really happen here, and it happened elsewhere as well, but this is the best account we have of it. The pirates, mostly Captain Foxley, convinced the crew of Charity to hand over their personal stashes of treasure. They promised to protect it from the Janissaries, but what choice did the crew of Charity have? They could refuse and allow the Janissaries to maybe torture the location of that treasure out of them, tear the ship apart until they found it, and maybe, just maybe, Captain Foxley was being honest here. Maybe he really didn't want to steal from these Englishmen. There was a certain code amongst mariners, especially mariners that were countrymen, not to harm one another. So Captain Foxley and the Englishmen squirreled away their personal treasures, and then their bonds were cut free. The crew of the Charity was brought back on board the Charity. It appears that any fears they may have had of enslavement were not the case. 
they were going to be allowed to go free. And then the crew of the Pearl was brought over to the Charity. The pirates wanted the Pearl, as it turned out, but they were set free on board the Charity as well. They had food, they had water, and they had their lives. It appeared that the pirates had been honest to their word. Well, they had been honest to their word when it came to not selling them as slaves in Tunis. Captain Bannister notes with almost a sense of wry amusement that Foxley and the other pirates sailed away with all of their goods on board. And once again, that is according to Captain Bannister. Perhaps there is the smallest possibility that Captain Foxley did follow that code. Perhaps he did give them back their personal effects, their personal cargo. This may have been the case. He did, after all, know Bannister. He probably knew most of the crew. But assume that you had been captured by pirates. You lost all of the cargo that belonged to your rich and powerful investors. Would you let them know that you had a few chests of treasure on board after the pirates had taken all of their goods? Or would you maybe find an abandoned bit of coastline somewhere, bury that treasure, and then write an elaborate tale about it too had been stolen from you by those vile pirates? All we have to go on is what Bannister told us, and he says that Foxley took the treasure— And frankly, I don't see any reason to not believe him, but I find it equally likely that perhaps Bannister was bending the truth here. I think I know what I would do. Next time, we're going to talk about the effects of this particular pirate attack. In some ways, the response to this raid was even bigger than that of the Rainiera Isodorina. Then we will go on to discuss the fates of the charity, and we will continue our story of Jack Ward and Simon Danziker. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has been kind enough to help support the show. Everybody who has given us a review wherever it is you listen to the show. Everyone who has suggested this show to your friends or family or on social media and everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or donated through the website, without all of your help, I would be unable to do this show. So to all of you, thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check it out, I absolutely suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, YouTube, or Reddit. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Time has come now to bid him goodbye.
captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight